Let's pray. Oh, our God, we thank you for your abundance of your grace in our lives. Father, as we think about the, the creation of the world and as we think about the, the unfolding plan of your plan that culminated in Christ and will culminate ultimately at the return of your Son, Jesus. Help us, Father, in the meantime, to be your people. Out of a genuine heart, serve you with all our, with all our means and all our mind. Amen. Generous living and giving. It's the last message on healthy church. I encourage you in the days ahead as you navigate as a church that you keep in mind these healthy markers. It's very important to realize that our denomination cares deeply about these areas of life. And what's really important, I think, is that, that this whole idea about giving and living flows from a deep love for God because of his love and grace in our lives. As a result of his love and grace in our lives, we give gifts, we give money, we give service to him. It flows out of his unbelievable generosity in our lives. Now, the Bible presents to us both the ideal and the real. It presents to the ideal that we're always gracious for what God is doing, and we're always happy, and we're always willing to give generously. But let's be honest, at times we don't feel so generous, do we? And circumstances push in on us where we just don't feel that sense of wanting to give. Anytime that happens, we need to go back to the God's grace and generosity for you and for me. Always the corrective correction in any area of our lives when we need correction to be spiritually energized is always to go back to God's grace and his generosity in our lives. I was uh, teaching a, cl a class of Romans on Wednesday night, and we went through well, probably the most important part of the first part of the book. It's amazing when we think of what God has done through us through Christ. Sweeps aside all performance religion. Sweeps that aside. Sweeps it aside. Recognizing that human beings, none of us, on any shred of human activity that we do or any of our innate, innate goodness is capable of reconnecting with God. It only comes through the powerful grace of Christ. And that's exhilarating. That forms the basis for service. That forms the basis for all the rest that unfolds in that book and unfolds in our lives. Well, this might be my last formalized ser uh, stewardship sermon. That's okay. <laughs> oh boy, here it comes. No, I'm not going to be heavy-handed. Never is the church of Jesus Christ ever to be heavy-handed to manipulate and exploit people to give to the church. Do you hear me? Never is the church of Jesus Christ be heavy-handed to manipulate and exploit people to give to the church. Some of you older will understand this story. The Butterball Company, turkey company, set up a hotline to answer consumer questions about preparing holiday turkeys. We'll have a turkey festival. We'll have Thanksgiving soon. One woman called to inquire about cooking a turkey that had been in the freezer for 23 years. The operator told it might be safe in the freezer if it was kept below zero degrees the entire time, but the operator warned the, her, even if it's safe, the flavor has probably deteriorated and she wouldn't recommend eating it. The caller replied, that's what we thought. Well, now we'll give it to the church. <laughs> I said, older, you'll understand that one. Here's a little trouble. This pastor is having trouble getting enough money in the offering plate of the church and he wanted to try a new approach. 
There was a minister who told everyone to stand during the offertory, at which time he instructed everyone to reach forward to the person standing in front of them, grab their wallet or their purse. <laughs> then he added, now open that up and give as you always wanted to, but felt you could never afford. How about being a cheerful giver? A six-year-old girl insisted that she was a first grader. She should be allowed to take part in the offering and put something in the offering plate during the worship service in her church. Of course, her mom and dad agreed wholeheartedly. Dad even gave her a dollar and explained that God loves more than anything else a cheerful giver. When the usher stopped beside the little girl and held out the offering plate, the little girl's voice ran throughout the, rang throughout the church. Hey, mister, do you have change for a dollar? Her very embarrassed father leaned down and whispered something in her ear. The whole congregation heard her reply, But Daddy, I'd be a cheerful giver if I could give some to the Lord and buy a candy bar too. In the minds of a little heart. Here's an example of, of generosity. There was these two guys who sold their company. 80% of this Kingston Technological Company, the largest manufacturer of computer memory products at the time, it was sold for $1.5 billion dollars. The two men decided to share their windfall with their employees. The average bonus payment their workers received was just over $75,000 each. They summarized their decision to share our success with everyone is the most joy we can have. That's the kind of heart we're looking for, isn't it? It is such a joy to freely give, to share the success with everyone that gives the greatest joy. I think that when we freely choose to be overwhelming and gracious to those we serve, God is delighted. Alicia last week did catch the, one of the most significant passages in the Bible on Christian community. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is the best passage on Christian stewardship, and I'm not going to preach on that one this morning. But I simply encourage you at times when you want to, to be energized to give, go to this passage. It encourages us to give to our, for our abilities and beyond in sacrificial giving. It, it's not based upon a comparison to anybody else. It's really between you and God. He always encourages that there's some sort of equality that those have will be cared for those who are in need. And the attitude, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. And God loves more than anything else is a cheerful giver. Now, the question always comes down to the issue of tithing for today. In the Old Testament, as you know, there's much prescription that's given in the Old Testament. It's given to nations, and in, to the nation, there's much things that are absolutely prescribed by case law. They also often saw the, the tithe that they gave of 10% was a tax. They all, many of them saw it that way, and then there was opportunities for them to give what were called free will offerings that they could give in service to the Lord. Now, the tithe is not prescribed in the New Testament, but I still think it's a wise principle for today. 10% for kingdom work. Move towards that. I think that's good, but it's not as prescribed in the New Testament. What's prescribed in the New Testament is more what's in your heart. What motivates you in your heart, and how does the Holy Spirit work to motivate us to be people who freely give out of our love for God? Sometimes, however, in my life, the tithe principle is a way to buy God off. I have given you my part. Now what I can do whatever I want with the rest. I kind of like that bargain. It's mine. That's wrong thinking. Because everything we possess, all that we have, comes from God, and he encourages us to make wise decisions. I want us to look at Jesus' teaching on the subject of generous living and giving. Turn with me to Mark 12. 
And I say turn you with Mark 12, I really mean today, turn with me to Mark 12, because you're not going to be able to understand my flow unless you have the Bible in front of you. You're not going to see it. And it can be more confusing if you don't have the Bible in front of you. Mark chapter 12. We need to realize, folks, as a people of faith, that studying the Bible is not a casual exercise. It will be illustrated this morning. Much false teaching arises out of isolation of a certain belief or so-called belief that's not weighed in the context of the whole message of the Bible. And so we need to be careful as we approach the Scripture with a sacredness but with a, with a tenacity to say, what is God communicating to us? Now, the Gospels have a certain kind of approach when you read the Gospels. It's very important that you have some understanding of the cultural context of the New Testament. History is important. History is important to us because it gives the context. To understand the Jewish thinking of the day, there's writings in the New Testament, there's other extra-biblical writings. To understand the Greco-Roman mind is important to understand the cultural context. You also need to understand as you study the Gospels, there's a certain kind of arrangement of the Gospels. There's not a consistency in the way they're arranged, at least the synoptics, the first three. There's things that are put in different places within a, may, may, uh, a basic framework of his birth, his teachings, his death, his resurrection. You see in the Gospel of Matthew, written to a Jewish audience, what is right up front is the Sermon on the Mount. Because if he's the Messiah, he must be able to articulate the law and the truth of God just like ancient Moses. And the new Moses, greater than Moses, has arisen. And the Old Testament law in its, in its exterior kind of cold reality is put together in the Sermon on the Mount with a heart, the heart that we need to put together as we seek to serve God. So you need to understand the Gospels are arranged differently. You're not going to see the things in the same place that's based upon the intention of the author. As the video you saw, sometimes the chapter divisions don't serve us well because it divides up at wrong places the context of a particular passage. What you need to go as you go into studying the Gospels is to realize the contextual flow of any passage that you're looking at in the Gospel. There's teachings that are put together with events, that are put together with Old Testament quotes, weaving together themes throughout the Gospel. And the challenge for us is to understand that section, what is the theme that runs through the whole section. Not take these little passages in isolation. Take the women's might and let's just put that one in isolation. You've missed all that's before it particularly in this case. So we need to be students of the word and understand things and how we approach it. Again, the story of the women's might, this is a little section. It's not isolated, the teaching and events that precede the instance in Jesus' life. Now, there is a conventional approach to the women's might, and there's a non-conventional approach. And I'm not exactly sure which one is correct, but I'm going to bring both of you to you this morning. But to start to understand this passage, we have to go back to verse 28, to the beginning of the flow of thought that informs the widow and her gift. Look at verse 28. It's very important, 28 through 34. Let me read it to you. One of the teachers of the law came and heard debating, noticing that Jesus has given a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is most important, the most important one answered Jesus is this, to hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And I love that really all your strength means as much as you can. Because us perfectionists, we have a real hard time. As much as you can. 
The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Well, said the teacher. The man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. From then on, nobody dared to ask him any questions. Folks, everything in our lives, everything in our lives flows from our love for God. Love God with all of our being. Always it directs first and foremost to the relationship with God. Then the secondary one is that we love people in our sphere of influence or our neighbor as yourself in healthy situations. There are some people that hate themselves in healthy situations. Folks, when we treat people poorly, we are not loving God as we should. If we genuinely love God, folks, stating it another way, it will always affect the way you treat people. This is so important for us to grab a hold. If you're not treating people well, you have to realize that that is, has something to do with your relationship with God. Attached to these two great commandments is another important concept, something that is important, that burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's interesting, and he says, there's something more important than burnt offerings. Burnt offering was the one where you dedicated your whole self to God as you gave that offering, all burnt up to God. But he's drawing upon the experience in the Old Testament of Saul. That's why you've got to go back and see the context for what's the story. What's going on here? He's quoting from Hosea 6.6, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Folks, love for God in action takes precedent over important religious rituals. The conventional wisdom of the day boiled down to doing sacrifices regularly. Then the God of the gods will give benefits to the offerer. Deeply embedded in the Canaanite religion, Israel was profoundly affected by their culture around them. God desires for Israel went far beyond prescriptions for ritual. For God, there's something deeper about understanding and knowing God truly and the covenantal loyalty that we have to him because we choose to, to walk with him. Sacrifices with right motivation are good and acceptable. But what about the actions of love and mercy and the care and justice in people's life that take precedent if we genuinely want to love our neighbor? The deep love of God and others is key in this section of Scripture in the story of the widow's might. In Mark's gospel text, this teacher of the law was close to the kingdom. He was close to the kingdom of God, but what did he need to know? What he was missing was who is the king of the kingdom. He didn't acknowledge the king of the kingdom. And so in the next section, as you look in verse 35, when Jesus was teaching the temple courts, why do the teachers of the law say the Messiah is the son of David? David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put the enemies under your feet. David himself called him Lord. How can he be his son? The crowd listened to him with delight. Now, why in the world, folks, you have to ask the question, does he bring this into the narrative? Why does he bring Psalm 110, one of the most quoted of the Old Testament in the New Testament? Why does he bring it into discussion? Because the question of this man was close to the kingdom, and he needs to know who the king of the kingdom. There is somebody in that psalm that's not the Lord, but is greater than David. That psalm is the purpose to identify who is the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, if you read Psalm 110, you'll see something remarkable. When he comes, when he comes, 
He is both the king and the priest, which is unprecedented in ancient Israel. To be both king and priest was unacceptable in the Old Testament. But there's something powerful about Psalm 110. It says, God desires his people to volunteer freely. He desires his people. It's used in a military context here, but he desires his people to freely serve him under the rule of the Messiah. And he will judge, folks, the behavior of wicked leaders. He will judge the behavior of wicked leaders. This passage is a bridge between the two. It answers the question why this man needs the king. He needs to know who's the king of the kingdom. We need to know who the king of the kingdom is. But when Messiah comes, he wants us to freely volunteer our lives. And he also makes a very strong warning against people who are wicked leaders. You see, Psalm 110 is there because it not only gives us the previous section, but it introduces the next one. What genuine piety looks like. You heard the scripture that was read this morning. We need to read it again. As he taught, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk in flowing robes and greeting of respect in the marketplaces and have most important seats in the synagogues and a place of honor. This is important. They devour widows' homes for the show with lengthy prayers. These men will be punished severely. Now notice the context. Keep the flow going, folks. Keep the flow going here. Genuine piety, he wants to say to us, will not be self-seeking. The teachers of the law loved attention. They loved self-glorification. They did their acts of piety to draw attention to how spiritual they were, special garments, special respect. They expected the lesser one to offer a greeting to them. They would never offer a greeting unless the lesser one offers a greeting to them. They sit in prominent places and prayers and giving. You know something? The beauty of it is the king that we worship never acted that way. The king of the kingdom that we worship Jesus never, never acted that way. In giving, they gave big sums of money so people could see how pious they were. There were 13 sites for them in the temple to give. They looked so pious, and people are to follow these leaders. And Jesus says, be careful. Be careful of these leaders. Jesus says that religious leaders love money, and, and the rich people would actually give money to the authorities to use their money to further the enterprise. The religious leaders of the day were particularly dependent on people's gifts. That opened the door for harmful manipulative practices to leverage money from people, which happened at a disgusting rate. They will be judged, folks, as the text says, on Judgment Day. When the Messiah returns, he will ju judge the hearts and the actions of people, just like Psalm 110 says. But the statement is an important one. They devour widows' homes while at the same time they offer these wonderful long prayers, sacrifices and burnt offerings, but they neglect what? Love and mercy and compassion and love for one's neighbor. Widows were the most vulnerable class of people in the ancient society of Jesus' day. So-called religious leaders would approach widows to will their homes to them in the name of religion. It's kind of a problem because most of the property was willed to the eldest son, so there's a conflict. They would seize the, pro the property of widows on a technicality. Terrible what was done, folks, in the name of religion. They sponged off the hospitality and good graces of people with limited means for their own gain. They guilted and shamed people to give to the religious cause. And the most vulnerable ones often fell for this because they put their trust and they put their hope in religious authorities. 
We could cite all kinds of examples all throughout history when this was used in an inappropriate way. How about in the time of indulgences to to further the the cause of this ornate church of St. Peter, that they would have people crawl up the stairs, poor people with nothing left, but a little bit they can give, to crawl up to the steps and be given a certificate that they have their ticket to heaven. Or how about the TV evangelists that line their pockets with people, and particularly the most vulnerable? Now we get to the story of the woman. Keep in mind the broader context. Jesus is making an observation, not necessarily an endorsement. He makes an observation, doesn't he? His observation is that she gave more than all these people who put in their big, huge sums of money. Because she was seen, and that experience was seen through God's point of view. One of the themes of this, potential themes of this story is she gave sacrificially. An approach to the passage in the context is genuine piety or genuine living out our lives of faith will be sacrificial if we get it right. And I offer to you as an encouragement, Jesus cites this poor widow, but follow the flow. Is she giving out of her deep sense of love for God? Is she giving out of her deep sense, and she's not under coercion, but she's giving freely. She's giving freely, as Psalm 110 says. And she gives it all. It's not the question, folks, how much we give, because we give proportionately to what God blesses us. The question is not about what we give. The real question is, what do we do with our surpluses? That's really the question. And that was the question for her. If she gives, she gives out of this heart that's moved and she gives a sterling example of Christian commitment that the desire, the Messiah desires that she gave it all. She gave sacrificially. All she had left, folks, was one sixty-fourth of a day's wage is all she had left. And sacrificially she gave. She gave and she gives sacrificially. And maybe that's one of the threads of this story is the idea that he calls us He calls us not to in comparison to anybody else. It's between us and God. But the question is, what about our surpluses? It's not a question of what you give. It's a question of what you do with the surplus. And she gave it all for some reason. And again, Jesus makes an observation. Now, I want to give you an alternative look at this passage. Genuine piety will not exploit others. There's a warning here given to religious people and given to religious leaders in particular. Now go through the flow. When we do not love God as we are, what do we do? So often we become susceptible to take advantage of people. Particularly when the focus is to maintain the religious system. Instead of a heartfelt, genuine compassion and responding out of a deep love for God, it becomes religious systems and religious systems become the focal point. It often leads to exploitation. We prey on people under the pretext of spirituality. The Messiah is looking for people to freely follow him, and he will judge those leaders for their actions. And the question ought to be, think about this. Is it a possibility, since Jesus doesn't tell us, that the fraud, what fraudulent religious system caused a vulnerable woman to give everything that she had? What caused her to give the last two little tiny little coins that she has? Though Jesus recognizes her sacrifice, I wonder if he is not deeply sad. 
Because in the context we see, he desires people not to get caught in the religious system. And he also says to them, the exploitation occurs to who? Widows. What is this woman? She's a woman. She's a widow. There's two principles to go home with today. We can give, and I encourage you, out of a deep love for God. When we don't give out of a deep love for God, when we find ourselves caught in the religious system, we need to be moved to freely give. Freely give. Not out of coercion or compulsion, but freely give because we love God so much. And we decide to to look at what we give, and then we look at our surplus, and we say, what commitment can I make? Not under duress. Not under coercion, because God doesn't coerce us to give. He invites us to give. But if we do not love God with a deep love and love others, there's a warning to Christ's church. Might we find ourselves as Christ's church being under this guise of religion, the guise of religious system that we want to maintain, that often leads to exploiting people, allow them to not freely be generous, but under compulsion they give because commitments are given under duress and under pressure because we have to support the religious system. I don't know why she gave the money. We don't know the motivation. Jesus doesn't tell us. It might have flowed from her deep love for God. And she was willing to sacrifice because following Christ calls for sacrifice, folks. It doesn't cause just buy God off. It calls for sacrifice. And she's an example. But I deeply suspect that there's something more going on here in the context of this passage. When we are into ritual instead of loving God, it changes the whole way we see stewardship, we see our lives. Not freely do we live. Not freely do we serve. But we encourage under compulsion, we force people to give or we force people to serve. And the leaders will be judged as Psalm 110 and the example that Jesus gives in the next flow of the passage. Folks, stewardship is about moving people to love God. I say to you, stewardship here is about moving people to love God wholeheartedly. When we become wholehearted followers of Jesus and our heart is right, what happens is generosity flows from us in the community of faith. It flows from us. And when it flows from us, it flows to minister to our neighbors around the world. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we we thank you immensely for what you've done for us. Father, keep our hearts in tune with you. Keep us sensitive to you so that we can be sensitive to others. Oh, Father, keep us from the judgment of becoming just religious people in a religious system that often leads to coercing and manipulating people for our own good. Father, it's all about your kingdom. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.